This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is in the loop, the legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This is Richard Lloyd, and you're listening to the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. DIY and How Studios presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Hello, diggers. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Christian Swain here. I am the rock and roll archaeologist, and I'm behind the mic in Hollywood today and after Master Studios. If you haven't heard, I want to let you all know we are now a part of Pantheon Media. The show and all of the fantastic podcasts exploring the age of rock and roll are now a part of this and will be brought to you by Pantheon from now on. And uh, keep an ear open because in just a few weeks we will be launching a couple of new awesome shows for you. Something for everyone here uh, at our new home, Pantheon Media. You can now find all the info, show notes, and what have you uh, at PantheonPodcasts.com. So that's the new website, PantheonPodcasts.com. Finally, and of course, this is the one that really matters to most of us. If you enjoy what we do here, then please tell a friend about Rock and Roll Archaeology, Deeper Digs in Rock, The Muses, The Rock and Roll Librarian, Real Rock, all your favorite shows. All right. Thank you. That takes care of the housekeeping. So let's meet our guest today. Help. I need somebody. Help. Not just anybody. Help. You know, I need someone. So, uh, there are 50-plus years in actual rock and roll history. We can split it in decades pretty easily, with a little overlap. Obviously, categorizing by genre is a way to go, and you can feel fairly confident in winning an argument that way. Uh, But can you point to one year as the single greatest in pop rock history? Uh, And if so, uh, what is that year? You got one? Most might suggest it depends on who you ask, how old the person you ask is, where they grew up, what they were exposed to as teens. Uh, There's a a lot of criteria. But 
if you were going to narrow it down to a few and academically look at it without bias, 1965 would be a serious contender. If rock and roll's birth date is 1955, with Rock Around the Clock as the first number one single, by 1965, rock and roll has become a matured art form, with the Beatles as king of the new mountain. Uh, it, it may be the year where everything comes together for the next several decades. Uh, a nexus point. That is the premise from our guest today, Andrew Grant Jackson, who wrote the book, Putting the Line in the Sand, 1965, The Most Revolutionary Year, published by our friends at Thomas Dunn Books. So, without further ado, here is Andrew Grant Jackson. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Andrew Grant Jackson. How are you doing today? Good. So, okay, first question. How do you got three presidents, or at least two and a half, in your name? Yeah, you know, um, now, when my folks name, I was born in 69, and the funny thing is, Andrew Jackson, at the time, my dad was a liberal guy, and he was known as being the working man's, you know, the guy who helped give the voting powers to the working you know, guy. But it was right around then that much more awareness of Native Americans started to come to the forefront. You know, if it had been like three years later or four years when uh, Marlon Brando had, you know, the, the, the woman take his Oscar, you know, and speak about wounded knee, maybe my dad wouldn't have named me Andrew Jackson because, I mean, <laughs> he had the trail of tears and all this oh, you know, yeah. bad stuff. So, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, different times and all. I get that. Um, you know, uh, that uh, Jackson was a bit of a populist as well. Yeah, Maybe yeah. not good times today. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't like his picture being in Trump's <laughs> office. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, at least it's evened out with uh, with Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, you know, who definitely uh, had a lot to do with uh, ending the Civil War and freeing the uh, the African Americans who were then slaves. That that's yeah, that's obviously. Fantastic. He was very – his administration was very corrupt, which oh, unfortunately yes. has like another <laughs> correlation today. You know, Have you thought of a name change? <laughs> well, you know, I, I stuck the grant in there because if people had – when I was trying to sell books, people had Googled Andrew Jackson. I would never come up, you know, because – Oh, you know, way down – yeah, you would be way down the list. So, yeah, yeah. maybe I should – well, now it's too late. But, uh, uh, just wait for this whole – administration to blow over. <laughs> yes. Well, well, we're all waiting. So, so, all right. All right. So, hey, so much to unpack here in this interview. Um, the, the book is really so dense and hitting as many spokes uh, on the wheel of popular music and culture of the time. Um, it's almost a, a reference book. Uh, and we've used it several times in our podcast series, uh, the the main narrative uh, rock and roll archaeology podcast. Um, so uh, let's let you lay it out quickly. Why 1965? Why do you think that will be remembered as the most revolutionary year in music? 
Well, you know, later years, 67, 68, you know, they definitely sound more radical. You know, if you take, you know, uh, Sergeant Pepper and play next to the birds, <laughs> a heart full of soul, you yeah. know, yeah. but I would argue that. I mean, as far as impact, uh, cultural relevance, sure, I, I see what you mean. But yeah, I think this was the moment when the the bomb was starting, you know, like the ignition point of the bomb blowing up, you know, mm-hmm. I, I use the metaphor in the book of the cocoon that's in black and white. And then this is the moment when the, the technicolor the butterfly, butterfly starts yeah, yeah, cracking yeah, out. Because yeah. you know? I think, you know, we, there's forces in society like uh, in technology and pharmacology, you know, you had like TV spreading ideas and the pill and LSD and then civil rights in Vietnam. I think those were changing the masses heads, making them want more personal freedom. And then the artists were the one, the record, recording artists were the ones who were most uh, directly expressing that. And so they, not only through the lyrics, you know, the crazy lyrics that Bob Dylan started to write and others. Yeah, surreal lyrics, yeah. Surreal mm. lyrics mm. and then new sounds. They were, you know, the English art students were taking the 50s rock and, yeah. you know, the mutating. British invasion, it, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Creating new genres, folk and rock mixing together, you know, psychedelia starting when they start playing with the sitar and feedback and distortion. So, yes, the book seems to make a a similar argument that is our mission statement of trying to prove that the music of the latter half of the 20th century was a convergence of music, culture, and technology. And um, uh, we think that uh, the further we get away from this moment, the more uh, important and influential it becomes in, you know, the history of mankind. Uh, An art movement, um, but on par to something like the Italian Renaissance, uh, I would say. Would you agree with that? Definitely. And, you know, there was even, I'm not speaking to the Italian Renaissance per se, but in terms of its importance beyond even just uh, music and art, Andrew Young, one of the uh, the civil rights leaders who yeah. worked alongside mm-hmm. Martin Luther King said that he felt that um, in terms of uh, creating the uh, conditions for integration, that music was possibly even as more potent than the church, you know, in the sense that it— Oh, you, you, you could uh, spread the message uh, quicker. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess you have all these, uh, you know, black artists, you know, their wonderful music's going into all these white people's heads. It probably becomes harder to just— you know, either not think about it or think they're, you know, have racism in your head. You know right, I mean? right, right. It does break down uh, a, a lot of barriers uh, and did uh, certainly at the time. I think that's why we're still talking about it today. All right. So <clears throat> tell us about yourself, Andrew. You know, how did how did you get into this uh, this idea that you would write uh, books on uh, on music? Well, you know, I uh, my dad played, he first was a Abbey Road and then Sergeant Pepper and then High Tides and Green Grass by the Stones and uh, um, Dylan's Greatest Hits Volume 2. You know, my mom was playing Simon and Garfunkel and then I was growing up in high... A lot of music in the house. A lot of music, you know, 60s music. And um, But when I was growing up in the 80s, uh, well, I was not cool, you know, in high school and I alienated against my uh, peers who were all playing synth pop or, you know... Uh, you know, uh, just that the the '80s sound of the time, and so I think I rebelled in my mind, going to a different 
going to Jangle Pop and just a completely different vibe than what was going on then. Yeah, well, maybe the 80s is, you know, the beginning of a, of a, of a more digital sound because, uh, you know, you had uh, these new cheaper uh, synthesizers, um, you know, most famously the Yamaha DX7 uh, comes out and you can emulate uh, these these sounds now. Uh, and as we go through the 80s, that's a lot of technology that begins the, the you know, the digital revolution, certainly in music. So, you know, what your interest was was going back to the more handheld uh, traditional type of instruments including the electric guitar yeah and now you know now many decades on i respect and love the 80s boom as a distinct i mean i yeah, think that yeah, the yeah. synths and drum machines that's like a is almost as big a revolution i guess you could oh, say certainly. in some ways yeah, so yeah. i mean i love it all now but just in at that moment that's what got me kicked started on it you know mm-hmm. back in the, mm-hmm. when i was in high school i yeah. got obsessed with yeah. the 60s. now you uh you grew up in uh in detroit is that right yeah yeah so a mo you know motown just was a oh porn gosh the, i can't imagine it's got to be everywhere yeah yeah, yeah. so the city's very proud of that fact yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah i mean in Mot, well the, I was going to say I was proud of the other stuff like Iggy and, you know, the Stooges and MC5, but obviously that wasn't really happening yet in 65. So. No. But, yeah, I love Bob Seger. Detroit was a great place for music. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, but especially then. So, uh, all right, so uh, tell us about getting uh, around to writing uh, this book. I, I believe you have, uh, this is your fourth book. You've had a couple uh, uh, before, all music-based, uh, right? Right, yeah. Um in terms of this one, I'd always just been kind of researching it for fun just through osmosis because I just read books constantly since for three or four decades. But um, when it came time to write it, A65 was my personal favorite because I always loved 50s music and kind of the older, even in the early 60s, kind of that older, more early style or, yeah, I guess, innocent style or, you know, slightly corny style, whatever. Um, but then I always loved the later years of the 60s too, but this kind of was the year when they both those kind of overlapped a little bit, I think. And uh, so it always had a personal fascination for me. But um, but then there's also just the fact that the other years have been covered by so many great writers, like 67, 68, 69. Those, they already were, there were tons of great books on all those, but there hadn't been... One there was uh, uh, there were some books on like the historical '65, but not so much the music of '65 specifically. I mean, I, you know, let's face it. Uh, you know, when people think back from you know now, looking back in the the the, the 1960s, uh, you know, the easy. Uh, things to point out are like 67, The Summer of Love, uh, obviously 69, Woodstock, maybe Altamont. Uh, there has been a couple of books written on Altamont recently. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, 68 is the height of the Vietnam War, uh, the change from, you know, a progressive society to a more conservative one. You got the uh, election of, Ron- uh, uh, <laughs> of Richard Nixon, uh, uh, although Ronald Reagan was made governor in 66 in California. That was a big change as well. Um, but you know that's starting to 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 morph into that uh, that period of um, where where it's easy to take the iconography 
uh, as well. Uh, you know, the, the hippies are in full swing. Uh, they're very different from the, the, uh, the, the, the look of the, the 50s and even the early 60s, which still had that sort of, uh, you know, more put together, short hair, uh, you know, looking like everybody else, the conformist, uh, if you will, uh, as opposed to the nonconformist of the latter half of the 60s out there. So, so. But I, I mean, I love, like you talk about the hippies, but I love, for instance, and here was when the acid test started and the Grateful yeah, Dead Kesey. Yeah, yeah. first yeah. started, their first gigs for Kesey were in December and Haight-Ashbury was taken off. And I love the idea that there was a quote in there from one of them talking about how, you know, by 67, it was overkill by the media. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, the diggers had kind of said, we're out of here. This is crazy. Yeah. The summer of love wasn't really a summer of love. It was uh, more a study, uh, a summer of overpopulation in a small area uh, when you get right down to it. But the year before, like 66, actually was kind of, you know, really where the dream was was really formulated uh, more yeah. so than the year after that. So, well, t- well tell us about the, the research. As you said, you, you've been reading, uh, you know, uh, you know the rock and roll biographies. I'm sure you've read uh, many of the journalists and the first person accounts uh, like Nick Cohn uh, oh, yeah. to make this, right? Yeah, he was, he was my first uh, favorite rock critic at a record convention. They used to have, I don't know, I'm sure they still do have them, but Back in the 80s, I would go to these places where they just have huge bins of records and, you know, like, uh, that's where I first discovered love and all these, you know. Oh, the LA band, yeah. Yeah. But um, I picked up this dog-eared Rock from the the Beginning by Nick Cohn, and I loved his style, which was kind of like Kerouac and J.D. Salinger and just very opinionated and saying things that went against all the kind of the Rolling Stone accepted wisdom that I had already picked up he was much more in your face and uh i think lester bangs got a lot from him later on yes but um yeah and the so i nick Cohn was my first favorite and i actually inadvertently plagiarized one of his titles i didn't realize (laughs) until years later i had done a book on the solo beatles and i called it still the greatest the essential songs of the beatles solo careers but he then i realized after the book had already come out he had a book called i am still the greatest says johnny um an Angelou, I think I can't remember <laughs> the character's last name, but so that's how much I love Nick Cohn. He, uh, I inadvertently took his title for one. Luckily, uh, you, you can't you copy could, it. You, you could do much worse. So, <laughs> so very good, very good. So, <clears throat> how do we get to 1965, the most revolutionary year? Was was a convergence of all the musical styles uh, being recognized in a in a single year? Um, you know, is, is that is that your first? Uh, you know, from from what reading the book, you know, it, it, it does as it goes through. And by the way, you do split it into seasons. Right. There, there are the four seasons, um, uh, starting with winter uh, and ending in fall, and uh, it kind of chronologically shows how these various forces, you know, come together or change or morph or or create a real metamorphosis, uh, as you, you said in your, uh, your, your, uh, your from cocoon to butterfly uh, right. uh, concept. Yeah, probably the biggest one of those of all the different uh, cross genre pollination things was, you know, Dylan, when he went uh, to folk rock, because, you know, he had started out as a uh, in high school, he wanted to be Little Richard. He or in Little Richard's band, he wrote in his yearbook, and mm-hmm. he freaked out his 
high school gymnasium when he came on. And oh, yeah, that only let him play like, well, you know, not even a full song and kicked him <laughs> off, right? Yeah. It, yeah. Screaming at the piano. But then, you know, it was like Fabian time when he was coming of age and he didn't look like those those. He had, have, he had to look like a movie star. Well, he had to look like Elvis. I mean, come on. Yeah. Elvis is a pretty good looking guy. So uh, every that was the model, if you will. Exactly. So he... He he went into the folk world, and uh, but then by the time uh, he he I, you know after Peter Paul and Mary had popularized his tunes and he he kept getting bigger in Newport and he uh, he was finally getting some power and also his albums didn't cost Columbia much back then he just went into a studio and one day and yeah, like yeah. recorded yeah, another there side of by- <laughs> there, there's another album Highway sixty one uh, revisitor blonde on blonde or uh, you know yeah yeah, yeah. like a couple of days but. He, he, the animals had heard his cover of uh, um, House of the Rising Sun, a traditional song, um, on uh, which they made a huge single. And Joan Baez talks of how when Dylan saw it, heard it on the radio, he pulled over the car and started banging the bumpers because he, that was, he wanted to be. That was it. That was the sound he, he really wanted. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and the Stones, he loved the Stones. So he finally had the power and actually. He, I, you know, interesting tidbit. He, he, one of his first recordings was they tried to do a, a rock and roll thing. Of, he did a rock tong- song called "Mixed Up Confusion" back in like '62, mm-hmm. but uh, his manager Albert Grossman thought that that was going to dilute or confuse his his branding. You know, so he, they pulled it. You know, but he he had been chomping at the bit to combine those, you know, deep lyrics with uh, great rock, and so. You know, he did it, and then the birds were doing it concurrently, you know. And so I would say that the folk rock was the biggest synthesis or convergence of the year. There's there's a lot of convergence there. I mean, you know, obviously the British invasion is kind of taking uh, the blues. Uh, you know, you mentioned the Stones, uh, specifically Chicago blues with, with those guys, you know, trying to emulate it as best they can. And whether they're successful or not um, – I'm not sure. Uh, I know. I know a couple of bluesmen who were like, hmm, "That's interesting, boys," but uh, <laughs> I don't know if I'd call that the blues. But they created uh, a new sound and 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 sent it back across the pond. And uh, wow, you know, uh, the kids ate it up. Uh, there you have it. Uh, you know, so uh, I think you have that British invasion also as a as a, a amalgamation of a couple of different styles. You have uh, soul music become into prominence here. Uh, I think uh, you know as we'll we'll talk a little bit deeper. You you have James Brown uh, does publicly got a brand new bag, which is you know the the beginnings of funk uh, in there. So there's a lot of these these uh, musical styles that are converging. But I think also as we we've said uh, uh, before here, uh, it's the the culture is shifting and there's a lot of change going on there, and there's a lot of technology that is coming now into uh, into the forefront. And we'll 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 dive deeper into that, but you know Bob Dylan does say uh, in your book um, uh, a quote. Uh, I, I guess the fifties would have ended in sixty five. I think it's fair to say that the sixties, you know, as we remember them, which is the latter part of the sixties, uh, might have begin in, began in sixty five. Although a lot of people point to November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, with the assassination of JFK. So. Do you think Dylan is correct, or do you think the other side is? Well, you know, if I can weigh in on both sides, I, I, I'll say Dylan because 
that suits the purpose of my book. You know? <laughs> so that's that. That'll be my vote. But you know, when, with Kennedy, well, he is the Pied Piper, right? right. Yeah. yeah. What, <laughs> hey, Dylan. Dylan knows better than me. If that's what Dylan said, well, who am I to say different than Dylan? But uh, but you could say that. Well, for a lot of reasons with Kennedy. I mean, obviously, uh, all the kids who grew up in safe suburbia where everything had been pretty uh, placid definitely gives them an existential, uh, you know, it's jarring existentially to suddenly see, oh, things can totally go wrong. Yeah. Well, you're president. I mean, you know, so many of the of the the early baby boomers really identified with with Kennedy. He was the future. He was, you know, young and uh, charismatic, uh, and uh, you know, there was so much promise. You know, this was the the new frontier. This was a a change from the previous generation's hold on power, or it was supposed to be. And you know, just two short years into his administration, you know, he's gunned down. And by who? Uh, you know, we all know there's, you know, this giant conspiracy that still surrounds, uh, you know, the assassination, uh, right. rightfully or wrong. Uh, it, it, it's there, you know, and right. it was it was palpable uh, at, at that time. Uh, you know, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, you know, uh, having to just to learn to live under the threat of, anni- of nuclear annihilation uh, in a moment's notice. It's, uh, it's got to yeah. be a, a lot going on. And, you know, as we get to 65, these this generation is beginning to mature. And it's a fairly educated uh, uh, population, probably the most educated population uh, to have come around, uh, right. and maybe since uh, yeah. as, as well. So, um, but you, you know, could I mention? You know, you, when we mentioned Kennedy, it made me think of two points that maybe the Kennedy is right because a his death, um, the programmers in in America needed counter programming after so much. You know the 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 funerals and so yeah, much darkness yeah. that they kind of seized on Beatlemania. Yeah, well, you know, February 9, nineteen sixty four. A sure, few short months later, you know, yeah, here come the mop tops. It's, so maybe they wouldn't have had such a big, you know, debut here. Uh, and the second thing is, if he hadn't been killed, um, Johnson, who had been the uh, had worked, been the master of the Senate, right? He took things that Kennedy theoretically wanted to do, the voting. You Voting know, Rights Act, yeah, yeah, civil, civil rights, rights yeah, Medicare, yeah, Medicaid, yeah. NASA, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and he he got them through by saying Kennedy wanted to do this. Everybody yeah. was so uh, you know broken up that they were like, yeah, we got to go along with this. Where maybe Kennedy might have not been able to get those things. Had he lived normally, maybe he wouldn't have gotten all those things through. Interesting know. point. Well, you know, and, and that's what I'm I'm trying to get to with the book. It, it, even though it is about 1965, you you do talk a little bit about some of the precursors to get to 1965 and the aftermath and some of the results that uh, that happen after it. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Although that that was the big tension in writing the book. I mean, a good tension, but. I, I'll go down the rabbit hole in any any in every direction. I just love, and you know, you you do need the to explain the context and the ramifications later. But my editor was always like, "Look, you got it. We only have a hundred thousand words here. You got to stick to uh, sixty-five. So we had to kind of cut off to an extent before and after, you know, to so the book could stay in its price model, you know, on, <laughs> on the bookstore shelf. <laughs> Well, let, let's uh, let's let's break it down a little bit here. Uh, let's talk technology. Uh, I might suggest 1965 is when you know t- television has matured. Um, colors now uh, getting to be a, a big thing. Uh, most 
uh, homes, certainly in white America, uh, have televisions, at least a black and white uh, uh, at this at this point. Uh, recording technology uh, has greatly matured by the by the mid decade. Um, you know, you you have Abbey Road Studios of with a four track, uh, and and then Columbia with you know four tracks, and and a lot of technologies being invented and brought into the studio on a daily basis. Here, you have new ways to create music, uh, such as uh, even just with a razor blade on a uh, on a uh, speaker uh, cone uh, all of Dave Davies with the kinks right uh, so you know how much do you think that had to do with this musical convergence that occurs in 65 well you know one thing that popped into my mind this is this is this was a kind of I'm curious do you think this is a two-way out you know of a thought but you could almost say that it was an evolutionary moment in humanity because hum- humans had created technology of television and media that were suddenly blasting images in Vietnam, the you know, civil rights struggles. Oh, Marshall McLuhan, the medium is the message. Right, yeah. yeah. Like before that, you, you know, so suddenly they were getting much more information through the t- And then pharmacology, which is a subset in a way of technology, if you think of like humans. You're getting to my next question, but sure, go ahead. Like, so they, they make the pill, and so that totally changes sexual relations, and they're, you know, so it's almost like, uh, and also LSD, you know, the way people were able to, you know, different states of mind. So it, it's almost, I don't know if this is too way out of thought, but it's not. <laughs> technology gets to the a tipping point where suddenly humans mutate themselves through their own technology to like a, 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 different level of thinking in many spheres which is very stressful you know but it's i think we're still going through that i think we're we're you know we're moving uh just to go down the rabbit hole for a second you know yeah um we 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 are moving into um you know an evolutionary shift uh in some way uh with the machine um you know and i think your point is is that you know this technology is now affecting um you know society on on a large scale on a daily basis um you know uh you know television molds you and especially you know you're 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 beginning now the age of the generation who's actually grown up completely and utterly on television uh even as a as a parenting device um so there's that uh without a doubt um uh you know the musicians artists you know as as we know you know uh art reflects life life and life reflects art uh you know the the, the old uh, cliche um you know that is happening here uh, in real time uh and unlike many other um uh, uh art forms uh, and you mentioned in in the book uh that I completely agree with you know th- this is done uh in an immediate nature as opposed to something that takes time to uh mature uh and even migrate through through the culture itself i mean like film takes months fil- for fil- them to put it out yeah yeah so uh you know this this happens uh, instantaneously you know we just mentioned you know dylan could you know uh, record an album in uh, in a matter of a couple of days and and have it out within a, a matter of a couple of weeks you know mm-hmm. and he wasn't the only one you know a lot of people uh, did that sort of thing uh, certainly at that time you know the interesting thing uh i do think on the musical side is 
is that, you know, a lot of these guys are now, they're self-contained. They're doing it themselves. This isn't, you know, which we will talk about, like the Brill Building, or we'll talk about the Wrecking Crew, the Funk Brothers, and that sort of stuff. You know, these guys are literally writing and recording it all themselves and making, you know, hit uh, hit records uh, at the same time and reinventing the art form itself. So, but you mentioned... Um, LSD. I want to. I want to talk about that because we do. We think of that as a technology. Um, so uh, I want to bring it up as it gets to the masses. Um, I bring it up here um, because, like I said in our in our main series, uh, episode nine, uh, we suggest LSD is a, a technology. Uh, its invention in 1938 at Sandoz by Hoffman. Uh, suggests that alone, pharmacology, right? But it's a very mind-altering substance that was now being taken um, by the intelligentsia, uh, you know, most famously with uh, with uh, Abby Ho- I mean... Uh, Aldous Huxley. Uh, well, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception, and then... Uh, 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 Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary and... Uh, and Albert. And, and Albert, yeah, Richard, right. now Ram Dass. Right. Uh, you, know, you know, handing it out to, you know, thinking that this is a way to to move the society forward by having the elites uh, join in. Um, but, uh, uh, but then, uh, you know, this, uh, this cat uh, named Ken Kesey gets a hold of it, <laughs> and he starts handing it out to everybody. Uh, and I think that's really the change. And, and some of the first of, you know, the, of these people to get that is, are the musicians themselves. Right. Yeah, the Beatles, they, they first got it because um, they're – their 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 friends with it. Their dentist was girlfriend was the house quote house bunny of yeah. the Playboy uh-huh. London Playboy Club, and the the dentist and her had heard it was some sort of aphrodisiac. They didn't even really know what it was. And when uh, John and George and their wives came over to their house one night, they dosed them with it, and then they told them after the fact, not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Although, like I guess George and John and Patty had good times, but Cynthia kind of. For you know, she she had a more malevolent. It gave her more malevolent vibes, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But um, but well, they went to the ad lib club and. Uh, things didn't turn out real good, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, there. And, uh, uh, yeah, it, it, probably not a good idea to, uh, to have somebody just dose you without, uh, knowing, uh, what's, what's coming. Uh, but, but at the same time, it's, it's legal. Yeah, it was know? legal then. You know, this is, I, I'm curious to your take on this because, uh, I hadn't heard in all my Beatles research, I hadn't seen this per se, but, you know, uh, so they get dosed, I forget if it was March 29th or something mm-hmm. like that, um, Naturally, they're probably like, what What the hell was that? And Paul McCartney's friend, he wasn't dosed, but his friend uh, Barry Miles is part of a big bookstore in London where Ginsburg speaks. Uh, Mid-April, they record Help. And Lennon has the lyrics in there, but now I've opened up the doors. I've always wondered, it, tell me if you think this is reading too much into it. I wonder if he was like, what just happened to me? Barry Miles or somebody says, "Oh, it's hey, like the doors of perception." Hey, go get Aldous, uh, Aldous Huxley's book, right? And he slips it into help. I don't know. I, do, do you think you're too reading too much? Might be a stretch. I mean, uh, we know for a fact. Tomorrow never knows uh, is a direct correlation to uh, to his LSD experiences. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, but I mean that that changes up the equation quite dramatically, especially when it then gets unleashed onto uh, you know, the 
the masses uh, here by by Kesey and the acid tests uh, of sixty four. And my my point is the experience is an alteration in consciousness, uh, a metamorphosis, like like your suggestion of uh, of the caterpillar to the butterfly, uh, to all who take it. Um, so how much did that begin to change the music in nineteen sixty five? Well. You- you know, I had two thoughts on that. One is it's interesting that I don't think a lot of the musicians, it was around 65, that take not even LSD, but they were first getting exposed uh, to, to pot. marijuana, pot, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Keith Richards says in his bio, in 60, his autobiography in 65, he was on tour with, uh, he doesn't, I don't think he says specifically who, but black uh, recording artists. He was like, the Stones were coming in every night after party and looking disheveled, like disasters. But the black guys were always super slick, and so he asked one of them, "How do you guys do it?" And the and the the black artist, whoever it was, he doesn't say. He said, "You take one of these, you smoke a little of this, and you take one of these." And he gave him some pot and uh, amphetamine. Yeah, yeah. and uh, that turned the stones onto pot. And uh, but in terms of how it's changing the music, so I think. I think they started, I think they were smoking, and the Beatles were already smoking pot from Dylan, from, you know, yeah. reintroducing mm-hmm. yeah. them. But I think, he, like, you, li- you listen to Ticket to Ride, the the end of A Hard Day's Night, they have this little arpeggio that George plays, which I think they revisit in the beginning of Ticket to Ride, but I think by then they've been smoking pot, and so they've suddenly, they've been listening to it weird, and it's it's a little heavier, and they kind of make it a little more shimmery. So I think the drugs started making them appreciate the way the technology can make it sound. And also, yeah, these guys were art students who, as you said before, they were, they loved the, the, the blues, but they couldn't probably do it. You know, they like the originals, but they gave them a detachment as other critics have said that they were unlike the white Americans who were too close to it. They could detach to look at the music and then they could step outside and go, how can we play with this a little? Cause obviously we can't match the originals. But we can start mutating. Like Pete Townsend's in art school. Mm-hmm. He starts thinking about, well, the Yardbirds were the first ones. That probably they were, they added the fuzz box to imitate a sitar. You know, and Pete Townsend's all into auto destruction yeah. because his yeah. painter, you mm-hmm. know, and his. Yeah, so the, he starts doing this way out feedback on anywhere, anyhow, anyway, you know. So I, I think they start, maybe they're smoking pot. They're just thinking, how can we play with the technology uh, to make it sound different? Whereas, uh, didn't see initially the, the white American Americans weren't doing that as much, maybe, you know, cause they hadn't been through art school. <laughs> <laughs> I see your point. I see your point. Yeah. That's a possibility. Uh, uh you know, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the British education system had changed, uh, in, uh, I think 1958, uh, the year, uh, Lenin, uh, goes to, uh, uh, to college and, uh, you know, there was no pathway prior to that than joining the the army, uh, right. you know, and uh, the conscription had ended. And now these other options were available to these, uh, you know, lower classes in the uh, the UK system. Uh, and, uh, you know, these folks went to art school and they were exposed to uh, the art itself or uh, the art movements. Uh, and then, you know, um, certainly uh, the mind-expanding uh, drugs such as uh, – uh, pot and LSD and uh and that uh then opens the doors to creativity. Right. So is what you're what you're trying to suggest here, I think. So yeah. um okay, so let's break down 
what the various musical uh, uh, variations that are going on in 65. I mean, I mean, obviously the big headline is the Beatles uh, and the British invasion. Uh, I, you know, it's funny. You, you disagree with that. You, you think more that the folk rock side of things maybe is, is, is a, is a bigger spoke with that. Is that true? Well, I guess when you're talking about a just convergence of previous, uh, you know, genres that had been in their, their different silos, mm-hmm. I, I think, uh, that's the one that, uh, well, you know, like a Rolling Stone comes across the radio. Suddenly, suddenly you have like you know rock music, but this guy's talking about what is, this is like a, a woman who was you know like a beauty queen or something, and now she's fallen into the street. Yeah, now and she's a homeless person. Yeah, it, things like that. Yeah, you know, like uh, was she on drugs? Is she like a hooker now? Yeah. You know, so many weird thoughts. You know, and that. Just, she's it, not the she's not the girl that's normally in a rock song, which right. is the one you want, right? Yeah, yeah, it's just, <laughs> totally. You know, he, so he, I think on both levels, uh, you know, suddenly you could just sing about, you know, uh, whatever. In fact, was that the one? Uh, he he was blocked by his own imitation right then. I think it was blocked from number hit. Oh no, yeah, was it blocked from number one by Eve of Destruction? Which uh, P.J. Sloan, yeah, uh, yeah, had uh, which written, was a which is a Dylan ripoff, yeah, definitely. yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and he's singing about you know civil rights and senators not voting, and, uh, you know, like nuclear holocaust. And, yeah, well, the lyrics are very obvious, uh, yeah. which Dylan probably wouldn't do. Uh, <laughs> I think that's the big difference between uh, between Eva Destruction and, and an actual Dylan song. Right, and it's uh, it's topical uh, and uh, it's political, it's polemic, and uh, he he. He he kind of shied away from that sort of thing, I think, at the right. time. So, so you, you know, uh, but you know, you you you. Okay, so let's 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 say you have the folk rock um, uh, that's being converged here. You have the British invasion, which has taken um, blues music and uh, not not the Beatles so much, but definitely the Who, the Yardbirds, the Stones, um, uh, and the Kinks are are kind of trying to copy that. They they they've kind of grown up on those records that have been brought over by U.S. servicemen. Uh, after World War II, uh, and uh, you know that's been thrown back. I, I think, uh, uh, as you point out in the book, um, uh, thirteen of the twenty-six number one hits uh, are by British uh, yeah, uh, was, British bands, right? That was the high point of the British invasion. There was one uh, week in April where ten of the or eight of the ten number one or eight of the ten top tens were British. And you know one and one of those was uh, the Seekers was Australian. I don't know if you yeah can ah, put that in there. Getting it, so. part of the empire at that point, yes. <laughs> so they that that was the time when it was. Uh, I'll count it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> give them a half a point or something. Yeah. But, but they, that was uh, definitely the peak in terms of their uh, you know commercial uh, dominance of the. Uh, um, and then I think Motown. I, yeah, I, yeah, Motown. You have stacks. Uh, you know. Uh, uh, that's uh, you know uh, uh, black music that's rising, uh, very different. Uh, but uh, and you the have, Beach Boys, yeah, the, the Beach Baroque Boys and the California pop. Sound. You have the Wrecking Crew out here. You know Motown. You have the Funk Brothers. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, and then of course uh, you know Bob Dylan does go electric uh, on uh, July twentieth at the Newport uh, Folk Festival that occurs in nineteen sixty five, and right. you know that is a big game changer. Uh, yeah. you know, made a lot of people a lot of people unhappy. Happy. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I'm obviously glad that he uh, did it, you know, but 
in a when I was writing about it, you can almost see some of the, those young ideal idealists' point in the sense that folk music had been the main voice of the civil rights movement, and mm. uh, and now suddenly, uh, and all their songs were about you know progress, social progress, and now but now Dylan's wearing polka dot shirts and trying to be like uh, the Beatles or something. You know, you can almost see how some of them would be like, ah, he's selling out. You know. So, uh, you know, sooner or later, uh, you know, you can't make you can't make everybody happy. And you can only, right. as an artist, you really only got to make yourself happy and uh, hope other people will understand and go along with uh, with what you're trying to do. Uh, and you know, I think history shows that it was definitely the right move. Yeah, but it's it's over the year you can see him getting. Uh, first, he's like freaked out by he's getting all the booze. Oh yeah. But then, and he's like talking to reporters. He's like. These people must be pretty rich. They come pay, pay a lot boom. of money to boo. <laughs> pay right. to boom. But at the end, he's like, that was like a carnival. He's like, it's great. You know, yeah. he starts yeah. feeding off. Yeah, it. it's it's not like the attendance dropped. <laughs> it's right. the thing. Right, yeah. right, right, right. And, of course, you got James Brown, who's right. doing his own thing yeah. out there. So it's just all these different musical styles seem to be coming together in, in 1965, as, as I think your point. So, um. I think we'd both agree that the song of 1965 uh, was, in fact, the Rolling Stones' satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction. Um, four weeks at number one uh, at the height of summer. Um, only yesterday uh, meets that uh, four weeks at number one. Do, do you agree with that assessment? Um do you mean it's like the best song of 65 or like the ultimate you're saying? Like yeah, the- yeah, kind of like, you know, almost every year has a, a, a very particular song that, you know, you can pretty much identify as as that. That was yeah. the song of the year. Yeah. You, so you, is it is it, is it yesterday or is it is it satisfaction or do I have it completely wrong? Is it well, something completely different? Well, I mean, you know, like a Rolling Stone is in there too. Yeah. Uh, you know, not that it had the, it wasn't number one for, I mean, only those two were number one for four weeks in a row. Right. Well, well you know, I would, I would, A, I would say, yeah, personally, satisfactions like in probably, in, in, in a lot of ways it was because it, it combined, in a way, it's folk rock lyrics. You know, he's complained about advertising and yeah, stuff. Yeah. But with the, the beat they recorded half of it there they started in chess studios before right. they moved to LA so it's got the blues thing and it's got the Motown they kind of imitate the uh, four tops four on the floor beat from uh, can't help myself and uh, then it's got the new technology where they he wanted uh, Keith Richards wa- wanted horns but there was no time you know they it, so uh, yeah yeah the 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 the, the lick is supposed to be a horn line originally is what he says is that as he thought of it as yeah yeah so uh ian stewart their their guy uh, their pian- pianist yeah, yeah. ran down to the street here in la and got a fuzz box which i had been used in the heart full of soul recently and other a lot of other stuff um i think um and so it kind of combines all these things we're talking about you know f- folk and the uh the soul and the blues and the technology like rolling stone maybe the most innovative in, but you know under you know well, you might an underdog is uh, james brown papa's got a brand new bag which in a way that's the song today with the rise of you know hip-hop oh is, all rhythmic yeah yeah uh, you know that's kind of supplanted now on the in pop you know yeah. rock yeah 
he he starts to move away from melody towards just pure uh, rhythm, as you say. And uh, um, so that's, you know, depending on which, what, which angle you're looking at things, you know, there, that's what's great about the year. There's so many different, um, you know, ways you can uh, go. Yesterday, you know, that's, uh, that kind of brings in the, the Baroque pop, the rise of mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. which Brian uh, Wilson was also working on, bringing in the strings and the classical stuff. So yeah, yeah, yeah. All... Looking back as well, uh, you know, uh, as opposed to uh, in the immediacy of most rock songs or or maybe tomorrow, how things are going to be better. Uh, you know, this is, um, you know, a, a, a bit of nostalgia uh from from a, a young very young writer at the time uh yeah. uh and it's uh it is it's taken another leap by adding in instrumentation uh that you don't normally find in a in a rock song at that time right yeah yeah, yeah. i think um uh that that that's one of my favorite genres baroque pop so that was one of the reasons i loved the year too that really and like wilson is trying to match phil specter in a way and he starts uh yeah, and Beach Boys today, the second side, it has all these uh, cornucopia of different instruments and, you know, orchestration and all that. So it's, uh, yeah, I, I love Yesterday's a great song, too. They're all, <laughs> it's hard to pin it down when you get right down to it. But, you know, um, I don't know. I just, I think back and I just, you know, satisfaction is just, it just screams through uh, the, uh, um, uh, through the speakers, even today, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, I see your point with with Papa's got a brand new bag. Definitely, you know, has this huge influence that uh, um, you know really grows. You know, the further we get away, right. um, but uh, you know that uh, distorted uh, quote unquote horn line, uh, right. you know, will stay with you until the day you die. Uh, and, and I love just the meta or the symbology or whatever that they, they'd been recording in chess studios you know they're uh the the home of their their uh idols and that was the last song that they recorded there they they kind of laid it they kind of laid it down i'm not sure if they re-recorded the whole thing they they did it they did some takes of it in chess and then they came out to yeah. la mm-hmm. and then they never go back to chess after that but it's kind of like this their graduation in a sense that song where they've they've been blues apprentices doing great stuff but here now they're going on to their own thing you know what i mean yeah that's a good point that's a good point all right so let's talk a little culture and politics on on january 20th 1965 linda johnson was inaugurated for the first full term and the great society uh is now in full swing uh, uh america is still in the post world war 2 uh economic boom uh unemployment was low so um how much did the good times uh make a difference to the sound of 65 that's a good question i mean I, on the one hand I, I just stepping away from the sound for a moment i think without those good times we wouldn't I have mean, medicare yeah. and medicaid today and you know uh, the uh, civil rights civil... act of 64 voting rights act of 65 uh it seems like you know we're on the verge of these, you know, amazing times. The Great Society. We're yeah. on the, but of Vietnam, of course. Yeah. Like uh, yeah. by the end of the year, at the beginning, uh, Johnson said something like, "These are the most hopeful times in two thousand years." Like when he says it Since is the birth of Jesus. Birth Christ. of Jesus. Right, right, right. With his first inauguration, you know, at the beginning of the year, but then by the end of the year, he's definitely, uh, you know, uh, 
Vietnam is definitely uh, crashing the party in his mind. You know? Yeah, I don't. You know, in '65 though, Vietnam's still a, you know some small dot on a globe, and uh, most people can't really point to it. I mean, you you know you have the first combat troops arrive beyond the the uh, advisors. Uh, I think right. 3,500 Marines land uh, in '65, um, but it's still not. You know, uh, you don't. You know, you know the 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 issue on campus is not so much Vietnam. It's more free speech. It's right. uh, Mario uh, Savio and uh, Berkeley and all of that. Uh, and uh, you know, that's some of the agitation that uh, is starting to happen. You have the Watts riots in, uh, right. in 1965 too, uh, and uh, that certainly uh, causes a lot of fear in in white America. Um, but uh, you know, you also have six point five million American women on the pill, uh, which had just been introduced five years prior. And, and this was the year um, that the Supreme Court decided that uh, there was a case Griswold versus uh, somebody in Connecticut. Yeah, the, yeah. Uh, that um, Connecticut was trying to say they uh, they couldn't prescribe the pill, but uh, the Supreme Court des- decided. Um, on privacy, yeah. privacy that yeah. it was you know marital privacy back then they call it that uh, so that kind of uh, paved the way for uh, the pill being widely uh, dispersed through, yeah and you know. the sexual revolution begins right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so so the, the 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 politics and culture at the time um, you know are beginning to shift and again going back to Dylan uh, who says that the the fifties really ended in 1965. I think these are maybe some of the things he's pointing to as, uh, as uh, evidence to, uh, to his argument, huh? Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so the album begins to become a thing in 1965, uh, at the, the back of the book, you have an appendix of, with 50 albums of the year. Um, and it, and it's, I, I believe it's done in chronological order. Yeah. That, that was my way to, to a kind of sidestep <laughs> having to say Rubber Soul or Highway 61 or whatever. Well, that was going to be my question. So pick three of the of the ones that should be at the at the top of the list if you had to rank them. Well, um, well, what, what I always loved about Rubber Soul was that, that kind of try, sums up so many different uh, move uh, movements of the year. And, you know, the, the following year, the Beatles will become the vanguard and like, you know, backwards guitars and crazy sound effects. But in a way this year, they're almost, uh, they're almost like the top, top dog who is listening to all the other people and then putting their spin on it and amplifying those things. Like they have, uh, you know, their, their, their stabs at soul, like drive my car, Mm -hmm. you know, they have the folk rock. Uh, I mean, the birds were inspired by their sound, but then, George Harrison tries to uh, emulate, uh, you know, some of their, their the bells of Rimney and stuff, and with his sound. And then John likes how he George does it on "If I Need Someone" does "Nowhere Man," you know. And they have, uh, you know, they they just bring in so many of the different types of uh, the sitar, you know, that that was kicking around with. Heartful of Soul imitated it, and then the the uh, Kinks tried to imitate it. The the general Indian sound on "See My Friend," and so. The Beatles were like, we got to get in on that, you know. So 
that album kind of sums up so many dis- disparate things. But so you would put that at the top of the list, uh, you know. But <laughs> but in terms of like earth shattering, uh, I don't want to you know, put a noose around your neck or anything like that. But but yeah, as far as as far as just cultural impact, uh, you know, let's face it, they they are the top act in the world uh, at the at that time. And and here is their statement: is your point right? Yeah, that that one, but the Dylan two, the Dylan two albums, you'd probably have to say those are the most uh, groundbreaking. I would imagine where he um, recorded, by the way, in like one or two days. You know, like with bringing it all back home. You know, and so those two albums, yeah, I would I would say they're probably one of the. I don't, you know, I like Highway sixty one slightly, but I, but I don't know. They're like neck and it's all neck and neck. You know? <laughs> like, so you're not gonna let me pin you down, then, huh? What about you? What, what, what would you? Say, so. Oh man, um, you know, uh, Rubber Soul, uh, you know, definitely is the one that will be remembered 500 years from now. Uh, def- uh, you know, the 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 two Bob Dylan albums uh, um, are uh, are absolutely uh, huge uh, and groundbreaking, uh, and will influence so many people uh, down the down the road. So I, I think we're pretty pretty well aligned uh out there as far as the 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 top the top three albums uh out there so my when i was a kid my personal favorite in high school was the who sings my generation but i, I, I couldn't uh the song or the well the album the, the whole album you oh. know? but i couldn't make an argument that that beats bob dylan or anything. <laughs> okay all right so oh so it's not just a personal uh personal preference it is uh uh you know it is it, it is uh you know from historical uh perspective you're you're the, you're 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 uh you're putting your professional hat on when you when you suggest those three yeah, yeah. <laughs> i mean soul purists they'd say like otis blue probably oh you know? yeah yeah that's a good one. Oh yeah yeah i'm a big otis fan so uh whoa, whoa, whoa. i love supreme I guess uh, that would be John Coltrane. Be, well, yeah, 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 yeah. And we'll we'll talk about that here. Uh, so, uh, let's let let's switch over to to, to black music uh, of the mid uh, decade. Uh, you know, James Brown is out on his own. Uh, you know, recreating himself again with Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Stax is conquering soul music, and Motown is mostly trying to claw into the white market uh, with great songwriting. All of the the Brill building uh, and top talent, like the Supremes, who have four number one uh, uh, hit records in 65. Uh, You got Smokey, The Temptations, etc. You know, the, the sound of young America, right? So what can we glean from from those moves? Well, you know the thing I always love about uh, talking about Motown and Stax, the irony in that. Um, so Motown was trying to cross over. So they, you know, they put the strings on, you know, and uh, Stax kind of had um, more uh, distorted guitar a little bit. Not too much, but for the time, uh, and they had horns yeah. and organ, and uh, but the real irony is that it was too. Um, whereas Barry Gordy obviously was the Motown guy, uh, it was uh, two white bankers, a brother and sister, <laughs> Stacks. Stewart was the guy, Jim Stewart. His yeah. last, yeah, his last name was Stewart. His sister's name was Axton. Yeah, yeah. So they make Stacks, 
And then the house band that plays on uh, Booker T and the MGs, yeah. Half of those guys, the, two the, white guys, two black guys, right? right. Yeah, so you, you, like the bassist and guitarist are the white guys, and so yeah, Steve Cropper and Donald Dunn, Donald Duck Dunn, and yeah, it's so they're the black the black raw label, but they're <laughs> they're like half white, and then you know, the, but I guess that I always wonder is it because the white being white did they feel they had more leeway to like experiment or they're more bohemian. Whereas for the black audience, it was more just, we got to, you know, we're trying to break onto the radio, the pop, the pop radio. Which is mostly white. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So they felt where the the real money was. Yeah. Right. They they want to make, yeah, the bigger audience. So they're trying to adhere, play by the rules. Whereas the, I don't know, it was just interesting, you know, the the contrast between those two labels. Yeah, and then and then like I said, then you have um, uh, James Brown out there just you know carving his own path, uh, yeah. and nobody getting in the way. Yeah, and I you know I don't I, I drummed a little bit in high school, but I'm not a good drum theorist. But I think he starts coming up with the funk beat, which I from what I understand, instead of like rock being on the two and the four, yeah, on the, the back one. beat, right, right. he's like doing it on the first, you know. The one or whatever. So that was like a kind of groundbreaking uh, rhythm, I guess, at the time. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, uh, unlike, you know, a support structure at Stax and and a huge support structure at Motown, including the finishing school, um, you know, again, here's, you know, this poor kid. You know, raised from the worst uh, whorehouse. He grew up, uh, you know, in yeah, in the the deepest, darkest South uh, oppression that you can imagine. Uh, you know, is just you know breaking through all of that. Uh, you know, I just I cannot say enough about uh, how important James Brown is to uh, to popular music in the latter half of the 20th century, and even as we've discussed uh, already a couple times today, uh, he's still making an impact. It's the story that I love in the that I think it was from um, well, it was from one of the biographies I read, but uh, I was a comic book uh, nerd when I was a little kid, and this kind of origin of James Brown, I always thought like he had been digging a ditch or something with these white guys when he was a teenager or a kid. Oh, I know where you're going with the electricity, yeah. Yeah, they there's like some sort of like electric pole or like it's in the water or something. And they're, they're going, hey, touch that. And he's like, no, I don't want to touch it. But they're like, touch it. So he touches it and he's they like make shocked. Him. Yeah, they make him, yeah. They make him touch it. And uh, it, it, this is very so cheesy. So this is the superhero origin <laughs> story. He gets like all this electricity coursing through him and then he like survives and then he can't say anything to them at the time because Jim oh, Crow, they yeah. like whatever. They would have beat him to death. Yeah. But he's after that, he's walking down the street, he says, with, quote, crocodile smile, just wishing like a white guy would say something to him. Cause, but he he knows he hopes they don't because he'd kill him, you know. So he's just this this anger of this guy, you know, but uh, it, but his resilience and just rising up. And uh, that's amazing. It's amazing. Amazing. So uh, so most of the, the, the book is dedicated to pop. Music, popular music at the time. You know, you have, uh, we have as we've discussed, discussed the uh, the um, um, uh, soul and 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 Motown music, uh, uh, the British Invasion. Um, you know, the blues side of things uh, from them. Uh, you have the the Baroque uh, music beginning to come in, the folk rock, which we've mentioned several times. But there's there's a, another uh, album we just talked about a second ago, and that's a Love Supreme. By by John Coltrane, um, 
that 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 fits into into your your book as well. Why why is that? Well, um, I would say two reasons. On on the one hand, uh, there's a chapter early on in the book that covers um, uh, the Selma, like in the civil rights uh, moment in the early part of the year, where um, you know uh, there it was like uh, Martin Luther King and all these people marching where the the white sheriffs, you know, they were trying to vote, register to vote, but the sheriffs were sick and the, the dogs and the, you know, all yeah. this horrible mm-hmm. beating Fire people on the bridge. And, yeah. But it gets, um, it gets broadcast on TV and the uh, revulsion of just the masses, you know, like the regular people in the country become so, uh, extreme. They finally push through a lot of uh, legislation and that happened right when Malcolm X got, uh, shot, killed, killed, shot. Yeah. And then Love Supreme was uh, released right then. So I just thought those three all happening simultaneously really uh, added up to a, a powerful moment. And also Love Supreme, even though, yeah, it was uh, jazz. Well, A, jazz wasn't quite so uh, divorced from popular the, uh, music at the time. Yeah. It was still kind of, yeah, mm-hmm. he had just done an album of uh, my favorite things. You know, they, they would cover, do covers of show tunes and things like that. But also, like, the Grateful Dead would later talk about how they would walk around Haight-Ashbury and you'd hear just floating out of uh, all the the um, people's apartments. And so that in, it's, it did influence a lot of, you know, the more uh, avant-garde of the, you know, uh, rock musicians at the time. And I mean, uh, you know, the Who with the—he was talking more like, with any way, anyhow, anywhere. He was trying to do uh, Charlie Parker, but, you know, the jazz was influencing— um, you know the rock musicians then too. So, you know, you you mentioned the the uh, the music wafting out and uh, Haight Ashbury and uh, how it uh, maybe influenced the the Dead and their, um, you know, uh, uh, improvisationals uh, uh, take on rock music. The the, the album is kind of interesting because it, it's it's a it's a four part spiritual awakening, uh, and I, I want you to tell us a little bit more uh, about that and, and why it's important because you know as you said that the 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 you know the the, the this is wafting out of the 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 uh, the houses in the in the in the hate and people like Jerry Garcia are picking it up who will take on this jazz improvisational uh, piece to 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 their interpretation of popular music. But, but you know, let's talk about the four parts of uh, of the Coltrane album, A Love Supreme. Yeah, he um, well, he had a very kind of uh, uh, he he studied many different religions, and uh, you know, from you know uh, Christianity to Islam to uh, Eastern Eastern religions, and um, so his he had kind of a the album was you know reflected his spiritual questing. You know, beyond any kind of label, just his pure uh, quest for a religious connection with, with uh, God, and he broke it into acknowledgement, resolution, pursuance, and psalm. Which, mm-hmm. you know, I, I could say acknowledgement. You know, he's he's acknowledging the need for you know uh, for a spiritual uh, uh, feeling or or, or a uh, a guide of some form, right? And then resolving to do what he had to do to to attain that and then pursuance you know yeah, pursuing it yeah. and psalm which uh what i always loved about that song was on the uh, liner notes he has a poem that he wrote uh, reflecting his spiritual beliefs and on the song he actually plays 
the words except on his saxophone. So, but if you read along with the the poem and you listen to him play it, you can kind of see how they fit together, and it just sounds so uh, majestic, you know, that his his horn, you know, his sax just kind of calling out across, you know, the universe, and uh, you know, it's just uh, very powerful. Yeah, it's uh, it's an amazing album in itself. It's just. Um, it just stands out as uh, different in the book than most of the other uh, the, the other music that you're 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 talking about. Well, that was part of the, partly too. Originally, I was you know Herbie Hancock and all these people you know uh, Artie Chef. Mm-hmm. He was all these people were doing. Oh, Artie Shaw, yeah, Shaw Artie. Yeah. Yeah, they were doing ton, tons of uh, great stuff, and I started to go into a jazz chapter. But then it was like you have to you know bring it in at a hundred. Okay, so where do I cut? And, uh, you know, for the most people buying the book, they're probably more, uh, you know, buying it for the rock and mm-hmm. stuff. So, you know, yeah. Um, uh, you know, uh, conversely, um, uh, you, 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 we, we've talked about the pop music. Uh, we talked a little bit about jazz here with Coltrane. Well, there's there's country too. Country yeah. is gonna is gonna change mostly by you know what what we now refer to as is maybe outlaw country. Right. Uh, you've got uh, you know uh, you've got Buck Owens and the and the Buckaroos. I, I think are kind of leading the charge, and I don't know if they're intentionally doing so, but uh, you know they they make a different type of music than what Nashville is really seeking uh, at that time, right? Yeah, I mean, well, you, the outlaws in the '70s, you know, like Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings, they were um, deliberately rebelling against Nashville's uptight restrictions because they, by that point, they were growing their hair longer and smoking pot and wanted to produce albums themselves. So, but the Bakersfield guys were a little, you know, before that, obviously, and it, it I don't know if they were so much rebelling in that. You know, uh, Nashville was on the East Coast, and then, but predominantly Okies. You know, they had come out from Oklahoma and all, and the Dust Bowl. Oh, the Dust Bowl and the yeah, the Depression. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and they had started their own. They had just gone to uh, Bakersfield. You know, on the other go to work, go to work, and and also it was kind of like an hour from Hollywood, so it kind of formed. It was far enough away from Hollywood. Not today. But yes, back then. Back then, oh yeah, yeah. Back then, they didn't have like gridlock everywhere. Right? Yeah, but yeah. yeah but, I actually, Buck Owens would uh, would come and do sessions during the day, and and head back for gigs uh, in Bakersfield in, in the evening. Yeah, or or and out out to Vegas, they'd go out to Vegas too from here. Right. Yeah. So there was like a there there was an economy that was supporting them, but then they were far enough away from Hollywood to not be Hollywood, and then they were far enough away from Nashville to just get their own kind of a uh, sound is uh, kind of, and uh, I think they, they went, whereas Nashville was trying to uh, cross over with a uh, pop, you know, adding strings and all that. They were Bakersfield. They were more uh, in touch with the honky tonk yeah. kind of just uh, yeah. stripped down more tougher sound, you know, with Merle Haggard and uh, Buck Owens going on out there. All right, so I, I think we've hit on the emerging musical genres that made a, a big difference in '65. Did, did I miss anything? No, I think you, uh, you did a good overview, overview there. So you you end the book on Vince Guaraldi's choice to score the Charlie Brown Christmas uh, special, uh, still an annual staple uh, on uh, on television, uh, as a positive sign. And then the surprising election of Ronald Reagan in 66 
and uh, and uh, and then of course Richard Nixon in '68. Um, kind of polar opposites here. Yeah. Well. Well. well with the Charlie. I mean, Brown. one's a progressive vision with Charlie Brown. Right. Yeah, not selling out. You know, like going to the whole folk uh, theme of the year. You know, like uh, in helping the weak. You know, getting like the weak tree and not getting the whole. Uh, you know, giant aluminum. The, the commercialization of Christmas. Commerci- is a, yeah, big point in that too. Yeah, avoiding, but um, yeah, you know, and also uh, uh, Schultz. It's interesting. Like his, you know, Lucy is like the psychiatrist in that one, yeah. and it, it kind of reflected the growing, uh, you know, uh, self help or the you know the boomers would be reaching out to uh, you know a lot of new psychological. Uh, well, their own spiritualism uh, and their own spiritual journey to to find what Joel, John Coltrane was uh, expressing in uh, Love Supreme. Yeah, to get over. Yeah, to get over like Charlie Brown's anxiety, to get over their own version of the, the anxiety that he yeah. was, or neuroses that he was suffering from. But yeah, and also Linus and Lucy, that the tune Garaldi did. You know, I mean, that's I put that up in my top ten or twenty of the songs of the year. Actually, you know, the Charlie Brown theme. Yeah. Is, I mean, it's a, it's definitely in a weird way a, one of the most enduring of that year. It is indelible. Yeah, 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 yeah. So. It's you know, they, they, and it ended like you say on a kind of nice note. Where it's funny, I'm working on one on '73 now, but in that year, The Exorcist came out the day after Christmas. So I'm kind of like, I wish I had a nice note to end on <laughs> this next book, but it's like the opposite. It's like the worst note <laughs> to end on. We'll talk about that in just a, in just a second. So you know, again, on the opposite side uh, is a regressive uh, uh, movement. Uh, you know, saying a, a stop uh, to all this that uh, maybe we're uh, we're going too far. Um, so my question to you is, you know, um, who won, or does the fight continue? I would say the. Uh that's a good question. It's pretty close. You know, I, the fight, obviously, the fight always continues today. You know, like, I mean, it's going on right now. I mean, that's what I think the, the story in the future of America will be the progressive forces that, you know, we see in this year, you know, like uh, civil rights and then also uh, even the sexual revolution with the pill that later that'll be like. Turned into the women's movement in the 1970s, right? The women's, Feminism yeah, is uh, on the rise and appears to take be taking another step forward yeah, taking a step forward now or yeah that, yeah after the last election definitely oh yeah the me too movement yeah, def- yeah. although now who knows with the court with the you feel they'll strike down you know, probably not but. can you really put the genie back in the bottle yeah right you know right. i just don't see that uh, happening i mean it's something to be fearful of definitely something to fight uh and keep those uh keep those rights moving forward um but um uh you know it's 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 really hard you know and and unless you know we re- return to another dark ages of some form uh right. it's really really hard i mean mass media the, it's so easy to get uh you know uh, uh you know knowledge at your fingertips i mean you you walk around with the encyclopedia britannica in your <laughs> pocket uh you know or i'm sorry the library of congress uh, yeah. and everything else uh, all on your fingertips it's it's amazing so um, do the songs of 50 years ago still matter? You know, um, in a way, you'd probably have to ask uh, 
well, I got an eight-year-old daughter. We'll, we'll ask her and like, we'll see when I try to get her into them. Like, uh, I don't, you know, do they matter to the teenagers? I mean, a lot of the, uh, well, definitely satisfaction complaining about advertising and get off my cloud. I mean, I get irritated every day. I'm trying to check my email and there's like all this, it's giving me, uh, I don't know, going to give me an epileptic fit, all these like commercials going on in the, the corner, you know, like uh, I, I definitely think uh, yeah, I think they're, you know, thematically is relevant. And and I think as uh, even as we move towards, I'm, I'm not sure how much of today's music is, you know, drum machines and, you know, uh, uh, and synths and all synth- synthesizers, which I, in a way, I think that makes it more interesting. I mean, I love, love a lot of music from those kind of sources, but in a way it makes the 65 music and the music of that time that it was recorded live or, you know, they would record the music live and then put the vocals over afterwards, whatever. You could hear the space, you know, it's not all like created in the computer. You hear the space of the of the room, you know, it's making it all more distinct, which I think people will grow to appreciate it, you know, more and more as we get away from that, you know, like, uh, so I think, you know, is it, I don't, will, will it become so unusual? Like, uh, Big band was still like around. Like Sinatra was still around in '65 uh, when they were. Hey, yeah, it's a big hits in '65. Yeah, but where the the kids were moving away from that yeah. that style, and then by the '70s and '80s, it, so I don't know. Will rock go the way of that kind of you know easy listening music to the next generation? I don't know. Well, even if it does, uh, you know, uh, it had a you know a 45, 50 year run. Uh, any way you look at it, uh, if you look at it from 55, uh, even if you were to say that the last great uh, uh, rock m- movement uh, genre would maybe be uh, grunge. Uh, well, I would say the strokes and the, the white stripes. That, or, or, okay, go even further into 2000. Now you're 50 plus years. So that's a, that's a long time for, for an art movement. Uh, I do think that it's a new story uh, being told today uh, that's different. I think the, the sounds of that music are uh, intentionally one of the 20th century of an industrial sound uh, at its peak, uh, more so than maybe an information uh, age uh, sound uh, that uh, that we we see a little bit more today. I think how people uh, digest music, which was uh, uh, in a very social uh, environment, uh, whether at home or uh, out on uh, out 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 in a in a show, is different from uh, from today. It's more of a personal uh, experience. It's it's about you know at home it's 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 with the white earbuds. You know at the show it's about you and your camera proving that you you are experiencing this thing so it's a, it's a it's a different sort of of, of, of feel uh, out there so it's a, it's a bit of a different story um you know I think the the music that we were talking about today um, you know was what informed the culture and uh, the culture informed that music was a feedback loop uh, that we can prove over and over uh, again it it, it, it it really did uh, make a difference in those lives. I think there are other things today, and, and maybe it's uh, just uh, through fragmentation, um, and maybe it's uh, through the availability and the on-demand availability of so many other things. It's, it's hard to kind of have a, a singular type of 
you know, water cooler moment for an entire culture. Yeah, they had three uh, networks back then. Only you know? three, yeah, yeah. And whatever, so. who, if you can get on those, then you had a giant audience. Right, right, right. So um, you kind of let the cat out of the bag, but I think you're you're writing a follow-up to, to 1965. Uh, is that true? Yeah, uh, uh, working on a 1973 right now, which uh, kind of, um, if you look at uh, this being the year that the explosion ignited, it's kind of, that's the year, okay, the dust is settling here. We just woke up from this crazy dream. What's going on now, you know? Yeah. What's yeah. next? Yeah. How far, how far into it are you? Um, it's all uh, mapped out but and uh, written, but in a very uh, sloppy way. So I need to uh, polish it up and get it, get it to the publisher so they can get it out in time, hopefully by next uh, 2019 holiday. So you'll so. have it out next year about this time. If I, if I get my, uh, I've got the hellhounds on my trail right now, you know, like if I get it, uh, get it done quick enough here. So. Can I hazard a guess who your superstar will be? Sure. David Bowie? Yeah, he's definitely, <laughs> he's, he's Aladdin sane. Yeah. yeah. Pinups, Pinups is actually interesting. That's got a lot of 60, he, his yeah. second oh, album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a cover album. Yeah. Yeah. yeah sure. Pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. Well, we look forward to uh, to catching that uh, and then talking to you about uh, uh, 1973 as another revolutionary year in music. Oh, thank you. Look forward to it, too. Andrew Grant ja- Jackson, thanks so much for being with us uh, today on Deeper Digs and Rock. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Well, there you have it. Author Andrew Grant Jackson has made a compelling case that 1965 was the most revolutionary year in music. Hey, we do not necessarily disagree. Uh, Like ourselves, Andrew is looking at societal, political, and technological changes. 1965 is a crossroads point in the latter half of the 20th century, and unlike 1968, in a very good way. It seemed America was growing as the most dominant culture at the time, and were including more of our people into the fabric we were selling to the rest of the world. The new frontier was still alive and well. It should have just been a start, uh, but if you are a fan of our Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast, well, you know by 1968 things begin to turn bleaker. Not that there isn't a lot of great rock and roll ahead and a lot of great years for the music, but certainly 1965 was special, and we will probably never see a year in music like it again. Trust me, many of the songs released from that year are still staples in music and will be with us forever. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs and Rock, produced by Pantheon Podcasts. Okay, keep up the rockin'. Oh, hey, Keith, prove my last point about songs being staples forever.
Hey diggers, Christian Swain here with a short pause for a great cause. We believe music education for young people is an investment in a better future for all of us. If you listen to our podcasts, chances are you agree. Little Kids Rock has transformed the lives of more than 650,000 public school students by bringing music education into their schools. Little Kids Rock trains teachers in underfunded schools to teach kids the music they love. From the Beatles to Bruno Mars, Led Zeppelin to Lady Gaga, Chuck Berry to Chance the Rapper. Little Kids Rock has become a national movement to restore, expand, and innovate music education in public schools across America. Visit littlekidsrock.org and learn more about how you can help put music where it belongs, in our schools. Thank you, and let's keep up the rockin' right into the next generation. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Please purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points. 